Well, good morning. This morning we will be in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible, or if you don't, use the blue Bible in front of you in the pew, and please turn there. We are finishing up, um, actually last week, Pastor Dan finished up his series through Hebrews, which I'm still encouraged by as I contemplate the absolute marvel of Christ as our priests constantly interceding for us. And so I pray that it was an encouragement to you as Pastor Dan preached through Hebrews. Um, When I preach, I'm in Philippians. And then next week, Pastor Dan will be jumping back up here for a very exciting series. I'll let him announce next week, in case you don't already know. Um, So Philippians chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 1, and do verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. In 1577, the HMS aid was commissioned by Queen Elizabeth to voyage for the Northwest Passage. They're trying to get across Canada. They're trying to find a way where we don't, you don't have to go all the way around South America. You can get across over to India for trading, a quicker route, the Northwest Passage. And like most voyages of this time, they're also looking for something else. They're looking for gold. As every good voyage of the 16th and 17th century Passages are good, but gold is better. And so heading up this voyage on the HMS aid is Sir Martin Frobisher. And I'm from Missouri, so I'm saying Frobisher. If you're from England, tell me later how to say it. (laughs) While the Northwest Passage was good, they're on this ship looking for gold, and this ship can carry 200 tons of cargo. They don't find the passage, but they do find gold ore. 
200 tons worth of gold ore and more that they just couldn't bring with them. So they go back to England with great joy because they're all stoked because they have this gold. When they get back within nine months, the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth at the time, commissions them again to go, except now they have a whole fleet. They got a bunch of ships. They have 400 men, 147, 147, which were actually miners. So they're planning to do some digging. And when they come back this time, they have 1,400 tons of gold ore. So 1,600 total. It's 3.2 million pounds, or 114 dump truck loads, if you will. It's a lot of gold ore. And you might be wondering, how did I not hear about this guy that found all this gold? I know about Cortez, but I don't know about Frobisher. Cortez's name is easier to say, so that's helpful. But the real reason is because Frobisher was not finding gold. He was finding a counterfeit. He was finding a fool's gold. It took them five years of smelters and alchemists working on this ore to find out that there's nothing of gold in it. It's just a rock called horns blend. It's black and it kind of has gold speckles on it. It looked good, it looked right, but at the end it was crushed and used for road gravel. 1,600 tons of road gravel was brought across the Atlantic. You see, while the ore looked real, in the economy, this fool's gold was worthless. It was absolutely worthless. Similarly, in the economy of God, confidence in the flesh is fool's gold when it comes to righteousness. The true currency, the only currency, the only righteousness that counts is Christ's. So in our passage this morning, the word is showing us the danger of putting our confidence in counterfeits. It's a lesson that Frobisher learned the hard way. He put all of his confidence in this counterfeit, and it came out to be nothing. So Christians, what the text shows us is that we must look out for and let go of counterfeits. And we must cling to our only confidence, Christ Jesus. We look out for and we let go of counterfeit confidence and we cling to our only confidence, Christ Jesus. What we're gonna do is we're gonna break the passage into three sections. The first section is verses one to three. Beware of the counterfeit. The second, verses four to six, the false confidence. And then third, verses seven to 11, our only confidence. Beware the counterfeit, the false confidence, our only confidence. So look back with me to verses one to three. I'm gonna read them again. Finally, my brothers, Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So, the text doesn't begin with the command look out, but it begins with the command rejoice. It begins with rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. This is Paul's constant refrain throughout Philippians, right? He's always showing the reader how you can rejoice no matter the trial, 
no matter the suffering, no matter what you're going through, you can rejoice in the Lord. And now he's saying, Philippians, false teachers are coming, and you can still rejoice. Actually, he says, it's a safeguard to you. Look, he says, it's no trouble to him, which means it's just, he's, it's worth repeating because we're hard-headed and he's got to get it through. So he's going to repeat it, but then he says, it's safe for you. It's a safeguard to you, maybe your translation might say. His point is that our joy is our protection. Our joy in the Lord is our defense. It's our armor. And what does it defend us against? Judaizers. That's in the text. That's who he's talking about. People coming into the church, teaching a counterfeit message of salvation. They're saying gospel plus something. For you to be righteous, for, you, for God who is judged, for you to come before God and him to say you are not guilty, they're saying you have to have gospel plus something. Your righteousness requires more than just the gospel. And so to see who these guys really are, though, Paul gives us three helpful descriptions, names, if you will. He calls them first in verse 2, dogs. He says, look out for the dogs. Now that, we have connotations with that term. It is not a derogatory term for Paul. It is a, a, a forceful term. It's poignant, but it's not derogatory. Gentiles are called dogs in this culture. Christ uses the term in Mark 7 for the Syrophoenician woman. So it's not derogatory, it's forceful. If you think about John, when he's writing in Revelation 22, and he's talking about the new city and new creation, who is outside of the new city? The dogs and sorcerers, and he goes on. The point is, is to indicate those who are not really in relationship with God. The dogs are the Gentiles, as in they are not those who are in relationship with God. So instead, ironically, of them saying, for you to be in relationship with God, you have to be circumcised, he's saying, no, actually, they're the ones not in relationship with God. They're the new Gentile. Then he goes on, he calls them evildoers. Again, he's being ironic, because what are they telling you you have to do? Is good works. They're saying you have to do good works plus the gospel, and he's saying they're actually doing evil works. The word's not evildoer, it's evil worker. So they are doing evil works by saying you must have the gospel plus good works. It's ironic. And finally, he says that they are the mutilators of the flesh. This is really where we see what they're teaching. Not only are they Gentiles, not only are they doing evil works, but calling for so-called good works, they are mutilators of the flesh. So what does that mean? Because we can take that to mean a lot of things. Again, contextually, they're teaching that to be righteous before God, you have to follow the command in Genesis 17 to be circumcised. That you're not, you're not truly the people of God unless you're a Jew. And you're not truly a Jew unless you have the physical act of circumcision done. Essentially, to be righteous, you have to be circumcised. But remember, Paul called them those who are not the people of God. He called them the Gentiles because they're the dogs. Then he called them the evildoers. They're not the ones doing the good works of the law. They're actually doing the evil works that the Gentiles would do. And now he's saying they're not actually doing the right of Genesis 17 
They're actually just mutilating the flesh. His, his point is to show that they are not the Jews. So who is the Jew? That's the question you must ask. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision who do three things. First, we worship by the Spirit of God. Second, we glory in Christ Jesus. And third, we put no confidence in the flesh. Paul clearly states we. The text says we. So author and reader. So a Jew and the Philippians who are undoubtedly not circumcised. He says we Christians, we are the circumcision. But how? Because what was once an external mark to distinguish the people of God has been made an internal mark done by God. So what the Judaizers wanted folks to do by making an external physical change, God had already done by making an internal change by giving them a new heart through the Spirit. That's the promise of Ezekiel 36 with the new covenant. He will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, he will write his law on your heart. God has made a heart change, an internal change, not an external change. And it's shown, not just because I say it happened, it's shown because we worship differently. We don't worship through the external right. We worship, as it says, by the Spirit of God. It means that God has made the internal change and given us this new heart so that we can worship Him right, which is worship Him by His Spirit. That's what Romans 2.29 is getting at. The true Jew is the one who worships in spirit, who is circumcised in the heart, not externally. So what does that mean, though? If we can say worship by the Spirit, what does that mean? What does it look like? Well, the next point, those who glory in Christ Jesus. To worship by the Spirit is to glorify Christ in all of our worship. Jesus explained in John 16, he, meaning the Spirit, is coming and he will glorify me. The whole ministry of the Spirit is to glorify Christ. He's floodlights. J.I. Packer likes to talk about the Spirit as a floodlight on a house. You don't look at the floodlights. You look at the house that they point to and illuminate. So our worship should be pointing to and illuminating Christ as we worship by the Spirit. That means our songs we sing, the way we pray, what we preach is all about Jesus. That is true circumcision worship. Hence, why we have no confidence in the flesh. Our only confidence, our only boast, is Christ and what he has done, his perfect life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, and his ascension to the throne. That is what we look to. That is what we glorify. That is what we magnify in our worship. And that is what makes us the true circumcision. That's what he's trying to get at. He's trying to see two kinds of people, those who think you're righteous by works, and those who are righteous by God. That's what he's setting up here. And he's going to show us where those two groups look to for their confidence in the next verses. But a question can come up. Why do we really need to look out for these guys? Like, they're not asking you to do anything bad. They actually want you to do good things. Of course, Paul says it's evil works, but 
you know, we can reason with it. Is that really that dangerous? Is that message really that dangerous? Yes, absolutely. Because what the Judaizers are doing, and let's back up here today, anyone who preaches a message of the gospel plus, what that does is it gives us a false confidence. It causes us to not look to Christ, to not exalt Christ in all we do, but what we do with him. We need to look out for them because eternity is in view. Because what they offer people, what they offer you, is a false confidence when you stand before God. They're saying, you say Christ plus me. And he's saying, we say just Christ. So why is this confidence so false? Why is it so bad? Well, let's look at verses four to six. And we'll see just what is this false confidence based on and how fleeting it is. Look at verses verse four with me. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So essentially, the text being as Paul saying, don't think I'm talking about what I don't know about. If anybody has reason to have this false confidence, it's me, it's Paul. Just look at my resume. He gives us seven reasons why he, above anybody else, should have this confidence. It breaks nicely into two groups. It's a group of all the things he was born with and all the things he's done. The first group, he was circumcised on the eighth day. This means he did the ritual or the ritual was done to him and it was done rightly. Genesis 17 says it's done to eight day olds among you. He is of the people of Israel. That means he's not a Gentile. There's no shady lineage for Paul. He's like a fully, full-blooded, true Jew, exactly who the Judaizers are looking for. By virtue of his lineage, he's also of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, if you read Judges, Benjamin's not a great tribe. But if you read Samuel, the first Samuel, Benjamin's a good tribe because the first king of Israel comes from Benjamin, albeit it's Saul. Nonetheless, primacy has power. The first king of Israel comes from Benjamin. And in 1 Kings, after Solomon dies, in the kingdom splits, who is loyal to the tribe of David's line, Judah? Benjamin. So he has that, that not only is he an Israelite, but he is of the loyal party. He's of the right nationality and the right party, so to speak. With that, Paul explains he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. This means that he spoke Hebrew, essentially. It means he maintained Hebrew culture. Because about 400 years before this, a somewhat influential world history figure named Alexander the Great took over this region completely. And Greek, the Greek language completely took over. Commerce and trade and religion. The Jews even translated the Old Testament out of Hebrew into Greek. But Paul's saying, yeah, I kept our heritage. I kept our language. I am, a, I hold on to the good culture. 
That's what he's born with. Now he also tells us about his works. Not only does he know the law, he's a Pharisee. It's like he really knows the law. He knows exactly how not to break the law. Like he knows everything about the law and he knows the rules you put up so you don't ever break the actual law. He's a Pharisee. And he's not just, not just that he knows the law, he's passionate about it. He is zealous. He was so zealous that he would go after Christians all the way to Damascus to stop them from messing with his ritualistic religion. And as to righteousness, he's blameless. Not sinless. He wouldn't be a good Pharisee if he said he is sinless. But he's blameless. Meaning, he didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. And everybody knew it. He wasn't a hypocrite. You couldn't call Paul a hypocrite. He had the perfect resume. Now, while we don't have Judaizers that would call us to look to these kind of things, specifically these things, we do have people that want to add works to the gospel. Or our own selves, we have a tendency to look to our identity markers as works for our righteousness every day. And it's easy to do it. It's easy to look to the right ritual being done, meaning you're a Christian. It could be your church attendance. It could be your church membership. Or sometimes we even perverse the sacraments of our Lord and think that it's baptism. It can be your national origin. It can be tribalism. It's that I'm part of the right group. I think a certain way. I hold certain values. I am of a certain nationality. That makes me a Christian. Or maybe you don't look to these things of the flesh that you are born with, but you look to the works outside. You look to your knowledge. You look to your passion. You look to your moral integrity, because we wouldn't call ourselves blameless, but we'd at least say we're moral, we have moral integrity. You look to these things to say that I have Jesus and this. These are false confidences, because Paul is going to show us what is all of this worth? What are all of these things that we look to? What are all of the things the world tells us we can look to? All the things Paul could have looked to, what is it worth? Well, look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith." So what is the false confidence worth? What was Sir Frobisher's 3.2 million pounds of rock worth? Nothing. It's worth nothing in the economy of God for righteousness. I want to make sure that's clear. In the economy of God for righteousness and gaining us righteousness, right standing before God as justified, it does not merit anything. Look what the text says. But whatever gain I had, it's not that they are bad things, there's gain. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Indeed, whatever everything, indeed, I count everything as loss. 
I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. There are four verbs here, four things Paul's doing, and all conveys one idea. In the economy of God, all confidence in the flesh is a false confidence not leading to righteousness. It's all fool's gold. And notice, it's not that false confidence leads to a zero. If you have a checkbook register, I think some people still have those. I actually don't, but I had one when I was younger. Um, I didn't have a checkbook. I had a debit card that I used like a, anyways. I, had, I know what a checkbook register is. Some people don't believe me. Anyways, if you have a checkbook register, you know that, you know what a loss is. It's not zero. It's a negative. It doesn't, you're not just at zero. You're in the red. You're in the negative. It doesn't just leave you at zero where everything's kind of good and you can balance it out. But confidence in the flesh is a loss. It's a negative mark. That means not only do you not have righteousness, actually you have unrighteousness because you don't have righteousness. Because you're looking to the flesh our confidence in the flesh, as good as it may seem, is a debt that has to be paid. And the question is, how do we pay it? If we can't put any confidence there, and the Judaizers are telling us we can, but Paul's saying you can't put any confidence there. So where do we put our confidence? What can pay the debt? God's righteousness. It's the only thing that can pay the debt. And the wondrous thing, the incomprehensible reality of the faith of the gospel message is that he gives it to you through faith in Christ. It's by grace through faith in Christ that that is the only way any righteousness can be gained before God. He gives it to you in Christ. This is what the text has been trying to show us. We started with, look out for the Judaizers, because they have a counterfeit. Well, why do we really need to look out for them? Because of their false confidence. So what's true confidence? Christ. Christ. Look at the text. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have suffered the loss of all things, for his sake, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So what's the result of counting all fleshly confidence as loss? You gain Christ. When you empty your hands of your fleshly confidence, you can cling to the confidence of Christ, which means, verse 9, you get the righteousness of God. Look at verse 9, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, verses four to six, all those things we can look to, whether it's national identity, whether it's our works, no matter what it is, whether it's church membership, all that fake righteousness, not having that, but having the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what you get. You get the only currency that matters in the economy of God. You get the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. The point is, we must count all earthly accolades as loss so that we can cling to the one source of righteousness, Christ. That is what he accomplished in his life, in his death, 
in his resurrection. It wasn't just a good model to follow. It wasn't just a display of love. It's those things, but it's more. And that is what he offers you through faith in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for, this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ lived the perfect life. So he never sinned. He always fulfilled the law and he always fulfilled the will of the Father. So he knew no sin. But on the cross, he became sin. He took upon himself all of the wrath for our sin, for our unrighteousness, and he bore it, every single sin for every single one of his people, so that through faith in him, you can put on his righteousness. Not your own. You don't cling to your own. You can put on his perfect righteousness. The only righteousness that pays out in God's economy is Christ. In Christ alone, our hope is found. That is what that means. So what does this mean? There's a lot of, if you will, seems like a lot of theology, but it's all practical. What's it mean? What's it mean for you? What's it mean for us right now, right today, right now today? Well, first of all, if you're not in Christ, see the true end awaiting confidence in the flesh. Friend, it's easy to think I'm a pretty good gal or I'm a pretty good guy and cling to that confidence. But Paul, look to Paul as an example. He's got the perfect resume of flesh, but it's worth nothing. All of his Pharisaism, all of his blamelessness, his national privileges, his zeal, they were all lost. His goodness was actually his wickedness. But Christ offers righteousness freely to you. He doesn't say do better and come back. He doesn't say, I'll do this part, you do your part. He says, let go of your fleshly confidence. Throw the fool's gold out and receive through faith the true treasure, the righteousness of God. You can only be in relationship with God through Christ and Christ alone. And Christians, this goes for us too. We talked about Judaizers above. You know, they're coming into the church. They're offering fool's gold. They're leading people astray. But sometimes we simplify false teachers like this as like the smiling preacher down in Texas or whoever you want to put to it. But the point is, is that it's not an external threat. Sometimes it's an internal threat. If we're honest, our minds want to lead us astray as well. Our flesh wants to cling and revert back to what it used to think was right. And we need to let go. It's a trap. Being found in Christ is all you need. Because think about the inverse. Think about the inverse. If it comes to righteousness before God, how God sees you as guilty or not guilty, think about the inverse. If you're in the courtroom and you say, look at my whatever, my nationality, whatever it is, 
Look at this white piece of evidence, God. But quickly, you start to see the blemishes all over it and the black ink all over it. It's not so white anymore. If it's your church membership, you got sick, okay? It happens. There's blemishes. But if Christ is your only confidence, if he's the only thing before you in that courtroom, you don't put anything forward, he steps in front of you. He steps in front of you. You are found in him. Your blemishes are not seen. Only the radiance of his perfect righteousness is seen. And nothing can pierce through his glowing righteousness. Not a single one of those drops or the blemishes that you have pierce that glowing righteousness of Christ. To be found in him is to not put anything forward but let him step in front of you. And the judge will declare not guilty because of Christ. He has taken your punishment and he has given you his righteousness. So every morning, every morning you get up, say to yourself, I am righteous in the sight of God, not because of me, but because of Christ. Every time you wonder, how can he forgive me? I am righteous in the sight of God, not because of me, but because of Christ. Every time you think, look what I did, I am righteous in the sight of God, not because of me, but because of Christ. Get that on repeat. That is the good news. That is liberating. That is freeing. Because what's, what question should we ask? Well, what about good works? Aren't we supposed to do good? Yeah, yeah, we are. Go do it. You can go do it now, right? It's a fair question. Doesn't doing good works matter? Yeah, it does. That's not what the text is talking about. It's talking about righteousness. How are you righteous before God? By Christ. No works and no obedience gain you God's righteousness. That's what 4 through 11 has been laboring to show. And when we get that, it frees us to go do good to others and to glorify Christ. If we're not concerned with gaining merit before God because of our good, then we can do them without worrying that we'll mess them up or that they won't be enough because you're already justified. Just go. That's the mark of a true Christian. Verse 3, to worship God by God's Spirit and to glory Christ. So if all you are doing, all you are doing is not to gain righteousness, but to glory Christ, you can do it freely. You will never lose any or gain any more righteousness by your works. You've already been justified. So go do them and do them looking to the one who's enabled you to do that, to glorify Christ in doing that is to acknowledge I can do this freely because Christ has already justified me. That is how we can go about fulfilling our commands and living in the righteousness of Christ. Always remember, I am righteous in the sight of God, not because of me, but because of Christ. Now let's look at the last two verses. They're in the same section, but the first few verses kind of take a little more focus. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. Well, back up. So he said, count, I'm counting all this as lost for the sake of Christ. I count everything as lost for the sake of Christ. I count it as rubbish 
for the sake of Christ and being found in him, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So in verse 7 through 9, we're shown confidence in the flesh must be counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, starting in verse 10, we see what we gain in Christ. We gain righteousness, and there's so much more. Look, first, that I may know him. That I may know him. We've seen what it means to be found in Christ, but this is, this is different. This is nuanced. This is personal, intimate relationship with God. You get to know God when you count all things lost and cling to Christ. This is the promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, one of the other promises, I said a promise earlier, one of the other promises of the new covenant. 31, Jeremiah 31, 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Notice, this is in the context of people being justified. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. But the ultimate blessing is not actually forgiveness. No, as one pastor has said, forgiveness is not the highest good of the gospel. It's God. You get to know God. The promise of the new covenant and the old, it, the promise of the new covenant and ultimate blessing is personal, intimate relationship with God. This is a relationship that was only ever experienced in the garden. Because if you think through your Bible, think through the Old Testament, there's always a priest. There's always a king. There's always some other head. There's no intimate relationship. But this is telling us that in Christ, we get to know him. We get to know God. Our perfect priest has brought us into personal relationship with God, and we can know him. We can call him, the one who's created, as Dan was praying earlier, who's created all things, who's in control of all things, whether it's the, the powers we see on the news or the tiny virus that's infecting people. He's sovereign over all things. And you get to know him personally. And he knows you personally. We call him Father. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we call the creator of the universe Father. Think about that blessing that we have in Christ. And in the darkness of the deepest valley, in life and in death, we know him, he knows us, and he is with us. That is the good news of the gospel. The second gain, or the second blessing in Christ, is that we get to know the power of the resurrection. First, this is our freedom from guilt in life and fear of death. Because on the cross and through his resurrection, Christ has destroyed all sin, death, and Satan. That's the power of the resurrection. We have no more sin looming over us to shame us. We have no more fear of death because we know it's not the end because Christ has been raised and we will be raised with him too. We have no fear in life 
and no fear of death because of the power of the resurrection first. Secondly, it also means we now have the power to put to death our sin. Colossians 3, 1 through 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And he goes on to say, and put to death what is earthly in you. So in Christ, we have the power to put to death sin because he's already defeated it. And so to know him and to know his power of resurrection means we can obey him and to follow him in his footsteps, which means we don't just follow him with power because our Savior did not just have power. He also suffered. Power sounds great, right? But don't forget the third blessing. Blessing is that you share in suffering. That might make us stop for a second and pause. If I have power, I'm not gonna suffer. That's the antithesis to power, right? No, these go together. And actually, fortunately, they're not just paired together. They're written in a certain order that I think gives us even more joy when we read this. Christians, first of all, You will face suffering if you are not right now or you have not, you will. Suffering is the way. I think our Chinese, our Arab, our Afghani, and other brothers and sisters know this to be abundantly true today. And we can be blinded by the air conditioning in our sanctuary and the lights and the lack of guards outside to suffering of that kind. But there is still suffering for all Christians as you face troubles in the workplace, as you face the possibility of family not talking to you. Whatever it is, there is suffering. Resurrection power does not come without suffering. Through your union with Christ by faith, you will face it, but you do not share in suffering without having received the power of the resurrection. Look which one's first in the text. You will receive, to to know the power of the resurrection and share in the sufferings. This means you can face the sufferings because you have the power of the resurrection. You can face suffering. You can continue to look to your only confidence in the midst of suffering, and you will never lose him who you know because you have his power. Finally, the last gain or blessing is the resurrection from the dead. This shows us that the text has more in view here than just current transformation. This is all transformation right now, right? I'm saying you can know him. You know him right now as you know Jesus. You have the power of resurrection to put to death now. You will face suffering now. But not only that, there's something to come. There's greatness to come. There's something that we can look forward to and seek with everything in us to come. The final result is our complete transformation through the promised resurrection from the dead. Paul doesn't have uncertainty about this, by the way. The ESV says, by any means possible. It's not trying to convey some kind of like, "Uh, it might happen. He's pretty sure, chapter one, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. No question about that. 
He just wants it so bad. And he fervently pushes toward it with everything he has. It doesn't, I don't care what it takes to get it. By any means possible, I'm going after it. That is how precious that is. Because on that day, the one he knows and the one he is found in will be before his face. He will see the beauty of our Savior who loved you enough to die for you, matched by none. He will see the, blender, the splendor of the perfection of Christ upon the resurrection. That's why, by any means possible. By any means possible. A few weeks ago, Pastor Dan was preaching Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. And he said something that stuck with me, something I think is so true. He said, we don't think about or talk about Zion enough. Zion, the new creation to come, the result of the resurrection. We don't talk about the blessings to come enough because we get so infatuated with the blessings before us. That is our great hope, though, friends, is Zion. Resurrection is our great hope. In the deepest valleys facing death, what can we say? This is not the end. When evil is happening to our brothers and sisters all around the world, when cancer wins again, when you just feel helpless, you can say, this is not the end. The end is so much better because you get God, the one who immeasurably loves you, our Savior Jesus Christ, the one who died for you, friends, by letting go of those earthly sources of confidence and with empty hands receiving Christ by the grace of God through faith, you get God. The only righteousness that matters is the righteousness, is God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness. These blessings are not paid for with fool's gold. It's only paid for by the surpassing worth of Christ. This is bought with the true treasure, not gravel. We must look out and we must let go of the counterfeits every day that hold us down. Empty our hands so we can cling to Christ. So with empty hands, received by grace, cling to Christ through faith, looking to him for your righteousness alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we rejoice in what you have done. You are our glory. You are the one who lifts our heads. We rejoice in knowing that you have accomplished our righteousness through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And Lord, we look to him. He is our solid rock. He's the only rock in which we can stand before you. Father, we confess that at times we look to ourselves for righteousness. And Lord, this text warns us of that danger. Stir in our hearts a desire to empty our hands of false confidence and to cling to our only confidence. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.